<clears throat> oh, sorry, you guys are ready. This is Lifting the Lid. Conversations with fascinating people living life on their terms. Our next guest requires no introduction, but it's the first episode, so we probably should make an effort. Paul Walton is a former child actor born in the UK. He's now a producer and partner at Princess Pictures, where he's worked on It's a Date, Open Slather, and the new Foxtel series, The Slot. A lot happened in between. So, here it is. Hello, Paul. Hey, mate. How are you? Now, before we get going, mate, uh, you did warn me that you might be out last night, so I just want to see how you've woken up. Yeah, pulled up pretty well. Thank you. Um, knowing I was doing this this morning probably helped. Made me take the wise choice. The voice is a bit croaky, but we're all good. Awesome. Let's start with why. So why are you excited to go to work every day at Princess Pictures? Oh, wow, that's a really good question. Um, I think what I love about Princess Pictures is the remarkable people that work here. Um, I overheard a conversation the other day, two young members of staff sort of talking to each other, and one of them said, oh, I really want to do this. And the other person said, well, you know what? If you hang around at Princess, they're going to give you an opportunity. If anyone's going to give you the opportunity, Princess will. And it, it really made, it sort of sent shivers down my spine because that's really what it's about. It's a people business. It's a it's an environment where we, we really listen to people and we try and identify what makes them happy and what their dreams are and what's on the horizon for them and, and really guide that in, whether that's a creative on camera or someone behind, whether it's a runner or an editor. You know, it's all about where do you want to go, what fuels your flame, and how can we be a part of that journey? So it's a really cool environment to be a part of. Do you take that seriously, helping? Yeah, I used to, weirdly, I used to take it probably too too much of a responsibility. So I used to try and like heal everyone, or like you know, like try and take on the responsibility of their careers, and try and solve everything. And over recent times, I've realised that really all I need to do is enable people to vocalise for themselves what they're looking to achieve and just lay a bit of a pathway down but it's not my responsibility for them to create their own success it's their responsibility um, so if we can you know guide them onto the yellow brick road towards their success and their happiness then that's great but ultimately they've got to take the first step so tell me what does a truly great day involve at princess well for me it's you know i try and i used to just be a bit of a flypaper to everybody else's day um, so a day for me used to be just turning up and seeing what happened. And I think, you know, that's not a good strategy for anyone. So what, what I do now, I'm lucky to have an amazing person who sort of manages my diary, Ali, and she'll block out time and she guides me around so that when I am doing something or when some time is blocked out like this, that I can be present and really give myself to that. So a really good day for me is when I get to the end of the day and I go, yeah, I really, really immersed myself in that day. So whether that's a, a writer's workshop, whether that's Emma, one of my business partners, and I sitting down and crafting out a deal, crafting out a finance plan, you're just really exhausting every option rather than just phoning in this is what's always done. This is business as normal. There is no business as normal. And in fact, in our industry, as you know, there's never been business as normal. So, you know, a good day is when I come home and go, yep, I've been a bit of an entrepreneur today. I've been a creative partner today. And, um, you know, maybe I've had a conversation with someone that's 
not been work related but somehow has helped them on their journey so um so yeah it's really a bit to me a good day at princess is when i feel like i'm totally present are there any better than those others in terms of you might get a project you've been working on for quite a while and you finally get the call that look this is happening what what is that day like oh mate yesterday i got a trailer from foxtel for so we're launching a show on foxtel called the slot which is was my brainchild it was it came to me in the middle of the night so it's a show that I've created in my mind. I've pitched to the network. I've financed with Emma and with Princess. I've you know, found the people, the creative team, and grown that and pushed them and, and really crafted that into something, delivered, delivered that show. And yesterday, so I got the, the promo that's gonna go start promoing on air. And for me, that was a, that was a really special moment because it was sort of like, well, first of all, I looked at it and went, holy moly, that idea is now an actual thing. It's an actual thing that we're now hanging on the gallery for people to enjoy, hanging on the wall for people to enjoy. So that's a, that was a really special time for me. Sometimes, you know, I'm so conscious of going, oh, that's a special time for me, thinking, oh, is that me being selfish and egotistical? But it's more, it's a special time for me because it's a realisation of my dreams, but it's also, there's 30 young creators in the show who got to get on television there's young producers who got to produce for the first time and there's editors who are now crafting out a professional CV for themselves. So it's a special moment for me, but it's but what makes it even more special is it's created amazing opportunities for others. You've had a very long career already in, <laughs> in the entertainment business, but um, tell me, how did you first get started? Take me back, because there's not everything on your IMDb page, by the way, no. so just take me back to the very early, the early times. Well... I don't know whether, do you remember we used to drink out of polystyrene cups when we were on set? We used to always get tea yes. and coffee and poly... I always think if they cut me in half, they could count the rings of polystyrene for the amount of years that I've been in the industry. So I started off really young. I actually, my first audition, so I started off as a child actor. My first audition was for Pink Floyd's The Wall video. Wow. Yeah. So, um, so it was a big casting call in, um, in Leeds. So I grew up in Yorkshire from a farming family. Um, and I went to that audition, I just got the bug. I was like, wow, this is an amazing community. This is an amazing environment. So I then went on to do theater, television, um, you know, had a sort of pretty good acting career up until about the age of 19 or 20. When I say career, I started at 12, so it was quite a long, you know, eight years. And then I realised that actually what I wanted to do is move behind the cam camera. I really wanted to be the puppeteer and not the puppet. I felt like I could, I could really make a difference being more a part of the leadership than the foot soldier. So, um, so I did that and worked on crew, worked as a first AD, which is where you and I first met. Um, and then um, was lucky enough to meet Laura Waters and start working alongside her. And then I became a, a partner at Princess Pictures and now carving out that legacy. You make it sound so simple. I just, oh, yeah. just simply moved in between all of these different... No, I've always been really good at setting my intention. And I think you, you, know, you and I have, have known that since we've worked together. Um, I think it's always really important for yourself to have a clear goal and a clear intention. But also when you then meet people, you can communicate and language that because everyone's busy, everyone's got their own truth and their own reality. So if you can actually just tell them really clearly what you want and where you're heading, then it gives them the ability to help you get there. Whereas if you actually come with just this wishy-washy, you know, I have people come to me and go, I want to direct. And I go, what? 
you want to direct traffic? What do you want to direct? You know, like, be clear. Tell me exactly what you're looking for, and then I can see whether I can help paint that picture with you. So um, I've always been very clear. I've always been very driven. Um, most importantly, I've always taken responsibility for my own success. I've never expected anybody to give it to me. Which I think is really important thing nowadays to take control of. Yeah, and I think we're seeing that with you know the, the growth of those amazing creators on YouTube. They have never waited for a gatekeeper to give them permission. So when you see someone who's got 9 million subscribers like Wenji, she crafted that, she made that happen. You know, she took responsibility, she adapted. So when things were not working, she adapted and she changed the course. She didn't just sit there and go, no, this is not working. It's not fair. She's like, okay, I've set my clear intention and head towards that. And now everybody knows exactly what she's looking to achieve and so they can help her on that, on that journey. So. Now, you permanently do comedy projects yep. nowadays, but in around the time that we first met, you worked on a pretty hardcore feature film as your first producer role. Tell me a little bit about M4J and how that got to screen. Uh, well, M4J was really interesting because I always say it's a romantic comedy and everyone thinks I'm crazy because it's actually it's more a junkie movie. So it's about two young lovers who are addicted to each other but also addicted to heroin. Um, and they want to make their life better and they never once choose to come off heroin. They just choose to make their life better by finding other ways to feed that habit and to feed that love for each other. Um, and that really came out of Alkinos Tsilimidos, who's the director. Uh, we, we had a film that we really wanted to make. We took it to FFC, which was at the time. Um, and FFC kicked us back. They, they didn't want to do that film. Um, but that, in a way, made us more determined to make a film together. So we, made, so we basically pulled together the finance ourselves um, and we pulled together a really small, intimate crew. Uh, Nick and Laura, who were the two leads, they really committed to it. I mean, they, they were so committed to be to becoming junkies, not necessarily putting anything in their arms, but you know, just to live in the life yeah. that the location of the apartment, which was the main location, they went and found, they, they sort of went on a bit of a starvation diet and went along to opens, open for inspections with real estate agents, pretty much in character to experience what life would give them if that's what they were like. Kind and so we ended impacts. up, yeah, so it was really fascinating. So um, so we just ended up with this really shitty apartment in St Kilda and um, that became the home of the production. And for all of us, it just gave it so much authenticity. Um, and then the challenge for us and, and why the film probably didn't reach as big an audience as we would have liked it to was at the time there was no internet. There's no way to distribute it mm. in a non-traditional way. And I remember turning up at, we had our premiere screen at the Forum Theatre pretty much the same night or the night after Kenny um, was going to be launched. So that launched at the same time. And I walked down the street, or I walked down Russell Street, and on the, on the back of every car was a bumper sticker that was like, I love Kenny. Or, you know, it was basically they'd just done this amazing awareness campaign offline with bumper stickers and at that moment I was like we're doomed we we just we're just relying on the work to find the audience and it was and around the same time as Candy wasn't it as well it was Heath exactly Ledger. the same time as Candy and so um, Heath Ledger obviously you know brought brought people into the cinema but but what I was going to say is that you know I think um, Shane and Clay the Jacobson brothers 
they knew that nobody was responsible for the success of their film other than them. And they created that success. And I think at the time, Alkinos and I were a little bit sort of caught up in, this is the most amazing film ever. We've managed to get the Black Keys to do the soundtrack. Everyone's going to love it. But we never really took responsibility to make it successful. We relied on the audience to make it successful. And that was a big learning for me going forward. And now as a producer, bringing audiences or bringing fans to the work that I do is I, I genuinely take responsibility to do that. I don't just expect them to find it. And I think that's... Um, I think that's a big point of difference between what we're doing now and what I did back then. And I think the other thing is important to have mentors and heroes and people you admire. And I know you work with you know lots of big names, but I want to hear about Paul Hogan. Uh, it was such an honour to work with Hogs and you know Shane Jacobson. You know in that same project, so we worked together on Charlie and Boots. Um, but the amazing thing about Hogs was he was so humble for a guy who. Um, he's just globally famous. Everybody knows him. Um, that he he was just he came along. He did the work. He knew what he was doing. He was so funny. His time, his comedy timing is just brilliant. Um, but he never was the movie star. Like he was so generous. Um, and and that was really reflected one night. We were in a in a we were in Hay, I think it was on the Hay Plains, and it pretty depressed place. They'd had no rain for like I don't know hundreds of years or something. And and we're in this bar, and I because I hadn't grown up with Paul Hogan, I only really knew him from Crocodile Dundee. So they were all talking about Leo Wanker, the character Leo Wanker, and I was like, who is this Leo Wanker character? And so Paul started doing Leo Wanker. It was a real, there was not many people, it was like an RSL or something, there wasn't many people in there. And um, it was just a really beautiful, entertaining night. And so, someone came over and just said to him, look, just want to thank you for a really lovely night. It's been really nice to see you guys enjoying yourselves and just loving what you do and sort of nostalgically looking back at these characters. And so we all started talking and drinking and eating and then and noticed Paul had left. He'd left the, the restaurant. And so we all get up to pay at the end of the night. And he swiped his card, paid for the whole restaurant and left. But didn't make a show of it. Didn't And you don't hear do those anything. you don't hear those stories. You hear all the negative stuff about people like Hoags, but you never hear that, do you? Yeah. And it was just a beautiful gesture and it wasn't anything based on ego. It was just a real um, acknowledgement of the fact that it was just a really nice intimate night between people who will look back on that time and you know reflect and enjoy it. The other amazing thing I I've, I've found from working with Paul, he was very open about um, how Crocodile Dundee was successful and the deals that they did and the risks that they took. And again, you don't make some you know that year. I think I don't know the exact figures, but. Um, something ridiculous like it grossed number one at the box office that year around the world and the second movie in the top ten grossed like $70 million or something less than Crocodile Dundee and he said to me what do you reckon that movie was I'm like, I was trying to rack my brains going what was that year and he was like what do you reckon it is what year was that I can't remember silence is not good for a podcast so no, I'll give you the answer <laughs> um Top Gun. Top Gun. <laughs> That's just 86. Like, so Crocodile and D outgrossed Top Gun, this little Aussie movie that these guys just basically 
talk to America and they just did a deal and I don't want to go into specifics because I can't remember whether I'm just remembering it nostalgically or whether it's true but they basically just changed the way it was done and they made all that money and they became super successful but on their terms they just took a risk it could have gone the wrong way but it went the right way and the rest is history because it's probably an early example of crowdfunding because Mike Willisey and a lot of people made a lot of money off investing in that film yeah and it was interesting. I think the the American the American market basically said we forecast what this film will make. You know, they predicted pretty low. They thought it made all its money in Australia, and I think it made the money that they predicted for the run in the first couple of weeks or something. And then the rest was profit for for Paul and that team who did back back it in. So yeah, it was the, it was the it was a massive disruption. And it was actually one of the reasons I moved to Australia because I just loved that movie. There's two movies that I grew up with loving so much. You couldn't you couldn't think of two more contrasting movies. One, Crocodile Dundee, and the other one, Rumpus Dumper. Oh, I thought you were going to say The Man from Stony River. No. Oh, well, that's my favourite. You know that. But, you know, no, Rumpus Dumper. I remember you just had this VHS pirate copy of Rumpus Dumper that I wore to the point of it was almost not on the tape anymore. I watched it so much and my mates in England loved it. And um, it, you know, it was just a, it was just a remarkable movie. It was just so different to anything I'd ever seen before. It was so risky, and I was like, oh, that's a pretty cool. It's sort of like when the Danish cinema started, and you're like, holy shit, people are making this stuff, and you know, the government's paying for it. You know, so um, and that's probably a little bit of the the sort of uh, darkness that sat behind um, M4J when we made M4J. Do you think we've taken a step back since then, though, in terms of the risks and the types of films that were made then to what is being theatrically broadcast nowadays in Australia? Look, I don't know. I, I hate to bash what's going on. I, I think it's harder to take a risk now, and even though people say they take risks, they sort of want to take risks, but they want certainty behind those risks. You know, when Daniel Scharf and... Um, and those guys made that film, they were young. They were young and reckless. And when you suddenly have to put kids through school and you bought your house and, you know, all those kind of things, it's much harder to take risks. So then you've got to align yourself with people who are still young and want to take risks. And I think that's what I'm now doing with... with um, I still want to take risks, but I don't want to lose my house doing it. So I'm sort of aligning with risk-takers, which, you know, naturally that those risk-takers are all living on YouTube or you know, just doing really cool, remarkable work. So I'm just living my risky life through them. <laughs> so Princess Pictures, you know, delivered so many great shows, all of Crystalies, It's a Date, which obviously you're a producer of, but how do you guys internally measure success? Is it related to ratings, you know, viewers, or is it pure creativity, what you get out of the content you're putting in front of audiences? Um, I think we probably, it's a really good question. I don't even know whether we yet have a, a measurable way of understanding how successful a project is. It's certainly not money. And often we'll get to the end and we go, did we make any money out of that? Um, so it's certainly not money. It's not the, our measure of success. Um, I feel like it's probably do we think we enabled that project to reach its max- maximum potential. So there's a, there's a show on our slate, The Ball, which was a, a, a documentary that was made at Princess years ago, you know, didn't reach a massive audience, but every time I've watched it, I feel so proud of it. And I wasn't even around then, but I'm just proud that Princess made that. And I think that's a really successful show. It's a date, so, you know, successful in a different way in that 
we're now developing that show in the US with the US network. So that's a measure of success. But I think it's always about, you know, did we achieve what we set out to achieve? Um, did we push boundaries? Did we take risks? And did we really back in that remarkable talent to achieve what we all set out to achieve? I think that's our measure of success. It sounds a bit fluffy duck and not KPI and couldn't fit in a spreadsheet. That's the thing that we're now about to embark on as we grow as a business. We now have to go, okay, how does that then translate back to the bottom line of the business so that we can keep the doors open and keep employing people and, and sustainably grow? And um, touching on a bit more creativity now, what inspires you creatively? Or who or what inspires you creatively? I'm just going to sound like such an, I don't know, I just people. I genuinely love everybody that works in this building. So they inspire me. And, it, and they make it bigger than me. Because um, I, I could just keep adding to my CV. I've got a real good CV. I've got, you know, the business is, the industry has been really good to me. I've got a good life. Um, but that's not enough. I mean, I'm, I'm a big believer in you have sort of two bank accounts in your life. Um, one of them's currency and one of them's finance. And currency feeds your heart and finance pays the bills. So the key to happiness for me is is getting the balance right between currency and finance. So the more finance you've got, the more currency you need. And when I see people who have got a lot of finance and very little currency, it doesn't matter how much money they've got in the bank or how many material things they've got, they're never going to be happy unless they can raise that currency and they can feed their heart and they can bounce out of bed to work. And you go to Vanuatu or you know places like that where the, the minimum wage is so low, they've got so little got the biggest smiles on the face they've got a tiny amount of finance but they've got masses of currency and so weirdly when life was much simpler um, you know currency always outweighed finance and I think as we sort of grow and attach things to ourselves we inevitably have to grow that financial bank um, but you just cannot overlook the currency does that make sense? Oh, beautifully put. <laughs> I must, I must say, it's kind of. I'll, I'll touch more on that, the happiest now because I think you've naturally taken us there. I also believe a key part in happiness is taking on challenges and also facing your fears. Does that resonate with you as well? And do you use that to gauge your currency as well? Oh, hundred percent. I think facing your fears is so important. But I, I try not to. I, I've, I've, I try to get rid of the word "try," which I'm not doing very well now. But I've really looked at my language. And I've looked at the language around difficulty and fear um, and they're sort of barriers to moving forward. So I, I've always, I'm now starting to use the word challenge um, and, you know, the challenges of where we are. Because when you think of a challenge, it's like, you know, tough mud is a challenge. You want to get to the end. You know, it sets, it's almost like for me, I'm so competitive. I like the thrill of the chase. So when I think of it as a challenge and not a hardship, Hardship makes me want to shy away from it. Challenge makes me want to grab it and take it on. So I agree. I think I think you know, looking at fears and looking to overcome those. Um, I think ego is a really interesting thing. I, I mean, Australia is a weird place that you know. I constantly hear people say, "Oh, don't get up yourself, mate." You know, or you know, in England it was, "Don't run before you can walk." So it's that constant pulling back. You know, just. Don't, don't get too ahead of yourself. Um, so we sort of wrestle with ego as a bad thing. 
And I've really come to terms with ego is actually not that bad a thing. It's actually quite a good thing. If you do it with the good intentions, I think jealousy plays a big part. And if people are achieving more than them, mm. they're not happy if you're happy. Mm. Where I think the most, the happy people in the world, as you mentioned before, don't gauge on other people's success. Yeah. I'm keen to touch a little bit more on when you talk about the challenge you like to chase. How much of that work-life balance so interrupts that challenge? How important is that balance to you? It's really important and um, it's something that I think of on a regular basis. I think there's times where I've really let work define me and, and you know, be the thing that I'm presenting to the world and, and even though I, I'm not a believer in time at the desk equals success, to me it's like as long as the job gets done and as long as at the end of the job you can go, I gave it my very best shot, whether that meant you were at the desk for one hour or you were at, de- at the desk throughout the night, I don't really care about that stuff. Work-life balance to me is more about communication. It's more about sitting down with your family and going, like this week I've been out of the office all week and I've been, you know, doing showbiz parties all week and, you know, things like that and drinks and dinners and the things that are really cool to do and you should enjoy. Like, um, and But I sat down at the weekend and I sat down with the family and just said, hey, this is what's happening this week and this is why. Um, but next weekend I'll be here. You know, and so I've got to go to LA for a week, but then when I get back, you know, I was lucky enough to be nominated for an actor award and, you know, it would be really easy for me to go off and do the showbiz thing and the first person I called was Rachel, my wife, and said, Hey, come to the actors with me. I really this has been a journey for both of us. Let's go and let's celebrate this together. So, um I think work life balance is as much about communication as is is about physical time in the house. And again it comes back to that thing we said right at the start, it's about presence. You've got kids. Your kids don't necessarily just want you in the house. They want you to sit next to them and read a story with them. Present in the moment. Present in the moment. They want you to cook with them. You're better off to have five minutes of really good, intense present time than be in the house, not present, checking your emails, you know, whatever, checking social media. I mean, it's that's the challenge for me right now is that my daughter's obsessed with social media and I'm obsessed with it in a different way because I'm sort of using it for business. So I'm checking it more than she is, but I'm telling her to keep not checking her social media. So I'm like, oh, dude, you're a hypocrite. So I'm now into schedule in my mind what that is. So I now when I come home, I, I try and uh, not always successful, but generally I come in and I, I really make myself take the phone, put it in the bedroom, close the door and go and be present. Um, and then I just disappear into the bedroom for five minutes, check it, and come back. But I try my my sort of challenge to myself right now is to not be on that device in front of my kids. But we talk about my wife and I talk about it's like smoking, like you wouldn't smoke in front of your kids, you wouldn't smoke in bed. So we always joke, we go put the cigarettes away. You know, neither <laughs> neither of us smoke, smoke, and neither of us have ever smoked. But you know, we sort of because it's that size of a cigarette packet, we always just go put the cigarettes in the side drawer. So we've sort of tried to almost like demonise it to ourselves to help that to lead by example, I suppose. And um, touching back on uh, creativity, I've noticed there has been a blurring between the home and work life on one of your projects with Superwog. Yeah. So I did notice a young Walton popped up. Yeah, she's in. She's a viral success. She's in two projects. Um, and she said to me the other day, Dad, when am I meeting my agent? I'm like, I'm your agent, <laughs> you know. Um, no, she's, she's just, I don't know, she's remarkable. Weirdly. Does that scare you though, in terms of what you've been through? Do you, do you have more positive or negative for, for your own kids maybe? treading the same path that you've been on? I don't really care. I think they'll just tread their own path. I mean, 
sometimes that's out of necessity that I just give them the opportunity and if I've never pushed them if they want to do it they do it I mean you know our house was in it today and that's because we ran out of money in the location budget so we shot at my house you know I've been in lots of things so um, yeah we, we blur the lines but in a fun way. Now you've worked across film, TV, online, you've worked across all of them. So I've got a two-part question here. What are the differences that you see nowadays and which do you prefer and why? I don't think it's a choice. I, I really don't think it's a choice. I, I, they're just distribution outlets. So, for you know... Just reaching the right audience? It's just chill about reaching the right audience. I, I genuinely am in love right now with the online YouTube creative space just because they are entrepreneurial, they do take responsibility themselves, they're remarkably creative. Um, the, you know, the challenge for them is that they are sort of still semi-professional and where we've got this you know, great bank of highly experienced professionals and so how do we bring that world together? But I just love that space, I, I genuinely, and the slot for me, even though it was like herding cats and it was a challenge, it was probably one of the most difficult things I've produced, um, just sort of seeing these meerkats pop up and just look at you as if to say, like, what next? What are we going to do next? You know, and they face every challenge every day. They listen, they react, um, they adapt. They're very nimble creators. Um, I'm, I'm really in love with that space. I, I, I'm finding it more of a challenge to... I'm just... Imp I've realised I'm impatient. I think that's what I loved about first in, you know, like, it's really immediate. And develop it sitting in a room and developing something for a year and then it being over in a heartbeat is not quite as rewarding for me as just an ongoing I would say f the, f the last day of development for me is when we deliver the project it's not like six months in advance of shooting the project so I'm just in I'm loving that space whether it, that ends well, I, my mission is to translate those to television to film um, just to broaden the distribution outlets for that remarkable talent and is it difficult to monetize that as a as a channel in terms of all the creators that are out there predominantly all of them are building audiences off their own bat and their own cash how hard is it i guess to take a super wog and translate that into something that they can actually do full-time and make a good living out of look i i think it's the whole thing about monetizing in online content i might just forget about it just forget about doing it and because you're defining it in the wrong way like we used to develop tv and film on a piece of paper in a cafe for months on end um no one ever talked about how do you monetize that what we always talked about is how do you convert that into a sale and these guys are just doing that but they're doing it in real time in front of an audience so let that development happen don't try and monetize it what you have to focus on is what is the goal? What are we looking towards doing? So with Superwog, it was always we want to translate the short form anecdotal content to a longer form, prove to the marketplace that we can do it, and then take that to marketplace and translate that into a sale. And that's what we've done. We're, we're in the process now of writing a series, which you know we've got a broadcaster attached. You've said previously that you worked on that script with them for quite a few months. Yeah. <laughs> what did they, I guess, have? How did that come together I mean did you identify those guys off the back of their online channel and then reach out to try and do something longer form and what did they already have and how did you want to see that develop well first of all they had really well developed characters um, they had the content that's on their channel was isn't it sort of was reaching 
the sort of maximum extent of what I thought their ability was in that space. But when I met them, I heard their story. I heard the the backstory to those characters. I, I really listened to their life story. And for me, I'm like, there's a lot of conflict in there. There's a lot of layers to these characters. Um, there's a there's just gold there to prospect. Let's just go and dive into that. And so rather than being skits, rather than being skits, so we moved over to the long form, and we just really drilled into their life. It was like a therapy session. We drilled into their life. We drilled into their values. I shared a lot of my life experience so that it wasn't just them giving. I gave a lot back. Um, and then we we sort of made a choice. We sort of looked at what what the audience wanted. And how do we marriage? How do we marry the, the the desire to go longer to to what the current desire for the audience is? And so we made every scene essentially had the tempo of their sketches. So if you break it down, you could pretty much take every scene out of that pilot and drop it on the Superwalk channel as an individual sketch. So we honoured the audience, and we really wanted to maintain authenticity with the audience. And I can't tell you how we're going to release the series and who's financed it and everything, but. When I can, maybe we can do a follow-up, you you will see that the way we're doing it is that we're truly honouring that audience and then growing that audience or broadening that audience to a much more linear, mainstream audience. So it's really exciting. Just speaking of that, I've got a short clip here that I actually want to play Ooh. from the show. Oh, my God. Am I, am I allowed to use this, by the way? Yeah, go for it. Yeah, I'll get uh, three chicken chilli burger meals. Yep, that's twenty three fifty, mate. Make it 20 bucks, bro. Here. Make it 20? Yeah, it's 20 bucks. What do you think this is, Gumtree? You can't negotiate here, you idiot. Oh, come on, man. $23.50 on that meal. Get out. Fucking Tony Soprano over here. <laughs> Which, number one, I'm a big Sopranos fan, yeah, so that was yeah. one of the reasons I wanted to play that. But two, as you just touched on then, which I wanted to talk about was, you know, I guess the process of comedy like this, you know, it can be funny in isolation, as you mentioned, but how must each of those continue to drive the story? Um, I think that little section you're talking about is the sort of classic Superworld montage where it's just lots of, you know, funny jokes. But if you sit behind it, the mission for Superworld in that is to prove to his dad that he can be as much of a man as him. He can put dinner on the table. So then as a producer, in the sort of Basil Fawlty style, you're like, how can I try and in every way stop him achieving that goal? And so... For Superwog, it's like, okay, I've got a job in a customer service environment, so what if the customers were potentially going to stop me achieving my goal of, of, you know, keeping this job? So bringing all those in, Superwog's his own worst enemy. He's like the biggest man-child. But weirdly, he's, he sort of says everything that we wish we could say. So you look at that guy in that clip and you're like, oh, my God, he looks like Colonel Sanders. Or he, No, he's the one, sorry, not the Colonel Sanders. He's the Tony Soprano one. And you just go, oh, I wish I'd have said that. I didn't have the guts to say it. But Superwog has no filter, and that's what's really... So he's sort of like it pushes against the political correctness. So, you know, in answer to your question, I think in a longer form, everything has to drive the story, but you can still have some fun along the way. And I, I, what I love about working with these boys is it's always comedy first and foremost. And um, I think growing up with Forty Towers, Carry On, you know, um, Benny Hill, Two Ronnies, like those classic British sitcoms, which are so politically incorrect and, you know, 
but they were all about the funny. With the launch of like Curb Your Enthusiasm has now come back in yep. those types of shows and cable, you can now be less PC than we were five years ago. Mm. But you know, they're less PC on the surface, but when you actually look at it, it's you know, Superwog just wants to fit in. You know, he's going through adolescence, which is who am I? Am I normal? Do I fit in? And where do I fit in? You know, and so it's sort of like you're still dealing with universal themes, but Which you we just, all still yeah, struggle with. We, we all, all struggle with it, and and especially as men, like a lot of us never reach manhood. You know, we still grow up as man child, man children. So their themes are stronger. It's not. It just goes from what we've done is translate it from Uber versus taxi, funny sketch to um, just lengthening it out. But it's always with those guys. It's putting Superwog in a situation that we know he's going to find challenging and what does that sort of, how does that bring up all those stories and those themes and those values and, and how does it affect that and what does it make us feel about our you know like the weird thing about that episode and some of the episodes that we're writing right now is from the outside from a politically cor- correct kind of viewpoint you go this is really abusive dysfunctional family but actually there's something about it that works for them so what does that say about us you know, how does that make us look at ourselves and go, well, maybe our more sanitized version of life that that's, seems to be working, maybe if we injected the passion and the heart of that ethnic background, it might keep the passion and the heart in our life. And I'm not saying you should go and bash your wife or go and, you know, be abusive in that life, but, you know, just sometimes just a little bit of passion and a little bit of drive and, you know, that polar opposites attract. When you're looking for a show or a creative team, yep. what do you look for, I guess, in terms of when you want to develop a show? Oh, I mean, my criteria is a good idea, could I hang out with them <laughs> and can they do it? That's just the basic thing. But the question we always ask at Princess is, why now? Why is it important to tell this story now? Um, and for Superwog, when you know we're going through an identity crisis in Australia, we know what we were. You know, we talk about Paul Hogan, the Aaron Williams sort of, you know, that's not a knife kind of identity for Australia. Compared to what we are now, which is, you know, young people seeing the world through different eyes, a generation that have never not had mobile phones, never not been connected to everybody in the world via the internet, who are curating their life to the rest of the world, that then starts to make you look at who am I? and who, what is my identity. So for me, the projects that I'm really loving at the moment, which is why I'm identifying with people online, is that they're all basically trying to find their identity, trying to look at where do I, where do I belong, who's my, who are my tribe, who are my people. Um, you know, so whether you are anti-Donna, sketchy, uh, Raka Raka, Bondi hipsters, Superwog, Natalie Tran, they're all diverse stories. They're all from different backgrounds and they're getting the ability to tell that story from a really truthful, honest space without anybody trying to sort of curate that for them in a way that we need a show about this and then going out and casting it. It's just coming from their DNA. They're just telling stories from within. Which was going to be my follow-up question was then, I'm assuming the advice for people listening and advice for people that want to create, produce, direct, whatever it is, go do yeah don't construct just get out there and just be really honest with yourself someone said to me the other day I'm just one of those guys that wears my heart on my sleeve and I'm really honest I was like why are you lying to me now 
And he was like, what do you mean? I said, well, because there's something you want to tell me that you're not telling me by pretending, by living the story that you're telling yourself. Like, just, if you are that, then move beyond this place that you're stuck and just get out there. If you want to be creative, you know, you can go, you can have the extreme of Alkinos who would happily create a piece of work that nobody sees because he's so happy just to create that piece of work. Or you can be Raka Raka, who have got four million views and need that immediate feedback. And you can be anywhere in between. You know, you, you decided to make a podcast and here we are, episode one. The difference between, you know, you and the person who's sitting there going, one day I'm going to do a podcast is you pressed record. Just press record. You know, everybody starts with a blank canvas and the hardest thing to do is just to make that first stroke. Um, so at, at the moment now when it is much easier to create something the people that stand out are the people who you feel would do it regardless of your inclusion There's and no for agenda. me then i'm like okay if you're going to do it anyway then i'm going to come on the ride with you or enable or find a way to help you make it and reach that full potential which i think is great so anyone out there i mean hope you're taking notes now with all this taken into account you know, I think we've covered a great base there. What do you feel is the key to living life on your own terms? <sighs> I don't know. That's a really good question. It's just take responsibility. No one is ever going to want you to be as happy as you want you to be. No one's ever going to take the responsibility. And you can surround yourself by really nice people. And, you know, I've done a lot of work on myself and what I stand for. And if you were in a room with me and we decided to work together, um, I would help you get there, but I'm not going to take responsibility for you. Um, equally, I don't expect you to take responsibility for me. So I think if you want to live on your own terms, then you just have to define what they are and take responsibility to make that happen. And if it's not happening the way you thought it would happen, change course. That would be, that would be my simple approach to that. Um, I mean, we probably touched on a little bit of it there already, but what does the future hold for you? I mean, how do you see the world changing and what do you think it holds for you in Princess Pictures moving forward? Um, look, I would love to see Australia as an as a industry um, grow. Um, I would like to see it stop um, having, having that mentality of this is the size of the cake, I'm just going to protect my piece or make my piece bigger at the expense of others. I would like us all to come together and go, and this is as a country as well as an industry, you know, let's grow this pie together. Let's just, you know, let's look out, not look in. Let's not be the best farmer's market in the world. Let's go out there and compete with the big guns because we've got the ability, we've got great stories. Our whole country is based on amazing stories. Um, so let's get there, out there and tell them. We've got a really entrepreneurial spirit here in Australia and I think we can lead the world with that, you, you know. So to me, it's more about that. What can we achieve? I would really love um, my peers, my sort of professional producing peers, to look over at this world that is coming up towards us really quickly, you know, these these amazing creators, and and just make them... Give them a ticket to the club, um, make them feel part of the team and to listen to them as well as learn from them 
and to impart some of our knowledge back to them. I think one of the most valuable pieces of information, advice I was ever given when I was starting out as a first AD, I was only young and I was, I just, I was like, how am I going to tell everyone what to do? And this gaffer just said to me, mate, you, you don't tell anyone what to do. Just stand next to someone and soak up all their experience and just guide them. Because if you've got, if I'm standing here with next to you with 25 years of experience and you use me wisely enough, then you've got 25 years of experience. And if you stand next to that person over there who's got 15 years of experience and soak up their experience, you've got 40 years of experience. So if we can distill some of our experience back to that world, then our industry will naturally grow and naturally be global and, you know, a really cool, exciting place to create. Beautifully said, mate. Three last quick questions. What are you watching? Oh, embarrassing scandal. <laughs> what are you listening to? Um, I really love listening to Tim Ferriss's podcasts. Um, Do you see audio and podcasts growing at an even more rapid rate than video has in recent times? I don't know if it's valuable and if it's available in as many places as possible. Yes. If people want it to be exclusive in one place, no. <laughs> so, you know, if we can share as much together, then yeah, definitely. I mean, I listen to podcasts and, and, um, and audio books every day on the way into work. I think that's such valuable, uninterrupted time. So I just like, I want to soak up as much of other people's experiences as I possibly can. And what are you reading? I just um, picked up, I'm just finishing off Creativity Inc., um, Ed Catmull's Great book, um, books, that. amazing. And then yesterday um, I went to a, a keynote with one of the, I've forgotten the guy's name, but he was he partnered with Steve Jobs to move Pixar from being a sort of hardware company into an entertainment company. So very much from the business COO perspective. So I'm really looking forward to reading his book and seeing how he approached exactly the same events from a business sense as Ed Catmull did from a creative sense so I'm really looking forward to bringing those two books together I just love Pixar and everything about it I think the, the way they're much flatter and everybody's across it rather than being sort of top down I think um, is a really good way to run a creative business mate that's it thank you very cool. thank you so much yeah really really appreciate it got um, lots out of there lots to go on and uh, yeah maybe we can have a catch up in a little while and yeah definitely maybe hear a bit more about some of the other stories that are going through Princess Pictures now. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, Princess Pictures is a really lively environment. We're very open and welcoming. So check us out on our Facebook page. You'll see what we're doing and you'll get a really good sense of the narrative that we're trying to create around Princess Pictures. Thank you very much, mate. Cheers, mate. Thanks for listening. Tune in to Lifting the Lid next time when we talk to someone else. <laughs> <laughs>